0: You can leave us a one-time gift or set up a recurring general donation. Thank you for your support. And now, let's begin today's message. Acts chapter 5, I'll begin reading at uh, verse 1. I'll read verses 1 and 2, but I'm going to take you back into chapter 4. Just be aware of that. I'll introduce this, but I'll move into chapter 4, give you some background, develop it, and move into the context as to why chapter 5 is uh, is such an important uh, portion to see. So, beginning at verse 1, reading to verse 2, chapter 5, book of Acts, a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife sold the possession and kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. And so... In our last study, just to bring you up to speed, and perhaps some of you weren't with us uh, last week. In our last study, uh, Peter had given a message. And we looked at the two reactions to the message that Peter had given. You remember the context. Peter and John, the apostles, had had gone to the the, uh, temple to pray at the hour of prayer, which was 3 o'clock in the afternoon. As they were about to enter in, uh, they encountered a, a man who was crippled who asked them for a charitable donation for alms. Instead of giving him alms, Peter had done something much greater. Uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, he performed a miracle and the man was healed. Now he had been crippled from his mother's womb, but was made to walk. and And he entered into the area with them, temple area with them, and and he was walking and he was leaping. And the scripture says, and he was praising God. And and when this happened, a crowd had formed to marvel at this. Now, well, that had given the apostle Peter an opportunity to preach to them about Jesus. And as we we saw, Peter's message had two basic effects. You see, some who had heard the message believed what he had said, and they came to faith in Christ. And as a result, the number of the men of the church grew to about five thousand. Now. There were others who heard what he was saying, but they had a different reaction. You know, obviously, they, uh, there's always going to be someone in the crowd, if you will, who will hear, but they rejected Jesus Christ. And again, not everyone hearing the gospel has a desire to receive salvation that's being offered. Now, the ones who most openly rejected the message were the religious leaders. These men had faith in their system. They rejected Jesus Christ. And and the result was that they put Peter and John into custody. Now Peter's message had been centered on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now these leaders, though, were from a, a sect called the Sadducees. And the Sadducees rejected resurrection. In Acts 23, verse 8, it reads, Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits. But the Pharisees believe all these things. So they had put Peter and John into custody. The next day, they questioned them. They were angered. They were troubled because they had been preaching that Jesus was resurrected. And so as we saw, their response was interesting. How dare these ignorant and unenlightened men teach these people? So Peter, being filled with the Holy Spirit, boldly made it clear how it had happened. He said, it was in Jesus' name whom they crucified, but God had raised from the dead. Now, he had already said something like that when he had originally preached the gospel in Acts 3. In verse 16, he had said, in his name, through faith in his name, well, that has made this man strong whom you see and know, yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence, he said, of you all. So Peter and John's boldness had made them take note of what they said. These men were not formally trained. They were without status. But the work could not be denied. They didn't want the message to spread any further. They tried to stop them. They threatened them severely. They promised them great punishment. You are not to preach, pray, or perform any more miracles in his name was their command. But they couldn't deny what happened. And they were fearing the people. The common people had heard Jesus gladly. And once again, this is happening. They wanted the original Jesus revolution, the original Jesus movement, crushed. Well, instead of stopping, they continued on. The most they could do was threaten them. They had no way to punish them. And because of this, they let them go, as we saw, having nothing to charge them with. When you pick up in chapter 4, verse 23, it says, being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So they returned to their own people. It says they returned to their own companions, probably the original 120. Remember, they had spent a night in jail. They boldly had proclaimed Christ to the council. They'd been threatened. They're tired Now they're drained. And so what happens is they need some encouragement. They need some comfort. You see, this persecution, which was initially started by the religious leaders, persecution has a way of drawing believers into unity and support. You see, in battle, petty things disappear. You begin to focus on the more important. And that's why verse 23 tells us they went to their own companions and reported all. They went again. The word companion really speaks of their own people. They went to their own people who undoubtedly were busy praying. They gave a report of what had been said to them as well as their own response. So, I want you to notice that the result wasn't that they complained against the religious leaders. How dare they treat us like this? How dare they call us ignorant, unlearned? How dare they... No, they didn't do anything like that. Instead of complaining against them, they lifted up their voices in prayer. And I'm going to look at a few of the aspects of this. It helps us in our own prayer life to notice these things. Notice verse 24. It says, "'When they heard that, they raised their voices to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God, who made heaven and earth and all the sea and all that is in them.'" They heard this they raised their voice to God notice with one accord first they prayed in unity they prayed with one mind they prayed with one purpose they heard and they raised their voice unity is an earmark of the early church you see it already in chapter 1 verse 14 chapter 2 verse 1 and all you see it in in acts 246 It says they continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread and uh, bread from house to house. That was something that Paul had commanded the church later on in Philippians 2 verse 2 when he said, Fulfill you my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And so the early church had that unity of spirit, and so together they're raising their voices to the Lord. And notice as they're doing so in verse 24, it says that they raise their voice. Uh, That that gives to us a a, a picture of intensity. They were fervent. In other words, they didn't take it lightly. Uh, they, They didn't have a casual kind of attitude. When they heard what had happened, they had been jailed overnight. They had been questioned, threatened severely. They took it seriously. And so together they began in unity to pray and to speak to the Lord in their prayer. And they raised their voice with a fervent kind of attitude in prayer. It reminds me of James five sixteen, where it says, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So it wasn't a lukewarm kind of thing. Well, you know, the Lord will. No, it's God. Oh, God. And that's what we're looking at as they're raising their voice to God. Now, I want you to notice again in verse 24 how it says they raise the voice to God. In other words... They're appealing to God. They're appealing to the sovereign God. They are recognizing his authority because they said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea. Now, when it says they said, Lord, that word Lord, there's an interesting word. It's the word "despota." The word despata is where you get the word despot from. It, it speaks of somebody who is an absolute master. They're speaking to God in the way they're saying to him, you are the absolute master. You are totally the king, the emperor over the entire universe. Everything is under your control. Everything, even the suffering, comes under the purview of your will. You're in total control of all things. And so because you are the master, we come to you. Asking for your help. You have ultimate authority. And that's how they prayed. They're raising up their voice. And they're speaking to God. And they're doing so with fervency. And as they're doing that. Verse 25 says to us. This is what they said. Who by the mouth of your servant David have said. Why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. People have united against you. They're attempting to keep your word from going forth. The rulers are doing that. The authorities are doing this. They're saying to you, to us, you must stop. You can't speak in this man's name anymore. We say, wow, that's interesting how that happened 2,000 years ago. It happens today, doesn't it? It happens to this day. It's happened in in our recent times where they're saying, don't gather together, don't worship the Lord, don't have fellowship, don't go to church. I mean, that's something that has happened in the past, but it's happened even in our time. And that's why we sought the Lord and we said, God, you're in control of all things. And and they appealed to scripture here in verses 25 and 26. They, They revealed their understanding of what's taking place and their dependence on the word of God. Opposition had been foreseen, and and they didn't think there was a way that they could avoid it. There wasn't a way for them to get around it. It's like what Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 17, when he said, be on your guard against men, they will hand you over to the local councils, flog you in their synagogues. You're not going to get away from it, no matter how quiet we become or how docile we may be. how how gentle we want to be, you don't get away from it. There will be people who will be opposing, and that's why we go to the Lord and we ask for His strength. In verses 27 and 28, they said, "...truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done." They knew, in other words, that opposition against them was actually not against them so much as rejection of Jesus, even even as Jesus in John 15, 18 had said to them, if the world hates you, understand, it hated me first. And so, though these people are joining forces, they only accomplished what God had determined. His son had been given for the sin of the world according to his plan. Salvation. So they appeal to Scripture for an understanding of their situation. And then in verse 29, Lord, look on their threats. Grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand and hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus, even as you had just recently raised this man who had been crippled from his mother's womb and had been crippled for 40 years. Stretch out your hand and do even greater works. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be that man who for 40 years, over 40 years, the scripture says, had been depending on other people for every single thing in his life. Every single thing. People had to carry him to this place called the gate, called Beautiful. They had to take him back. They would have undoubtedly bathed him and clothed him and even perhaps fed or helped to feed him every day. Every day. Not for a week and not for a month and not for a year. Not for 10 years, not for 20, not for 30, but over 40. Can you imagine that for a minute? When my mom broke her back, my mom broke her back. Her last year of life, mama had fallen. She broke her back. I actually had been in New Mexico. Mama lived in New Mexico with my sister, and I had been in New Mexico. I was doing some ministry, and I was on the way to the, to the airport. We were flying out. When I got a call, my sister said, Mama fell down, Dave, and she broke her back. I wasn't able to see my mom. We were on about to go to the airport to leave, and so I, I would talk to my, my sister, still do, twice a week, to see how things are going. When I could speak to my mom, I would. My mom went through um, a broken back, but she also had dementia. Severely uh, affected her in her last, last uh, year of life. But my sister Becky would carry her, feed her, bathe her, and that was just a year. Imagine 40-plus years of having that in your life. And then you're there at a beautiful gate, the temple area where people are entering in for, for ministry, prayer, whatever they were going to be doing in. You're asking for help, and and here comes these two men, and they look down at you, and they say, look at us. And you look up, expecting to receive something, because that's what you're wanting, some money. And then Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I say unto you, rise to your feet and walk. And then this man reaches down and grabs you by the hand and begins to lift you up. And from the soles of your feet, your ankles, your, your legs begin to be strengthened. And before you know it, you're standing and you're so amazed. Can you imagine that? Forty-plus years of depending on everybody else. And now you're walking and you begin to jump. You're leaping and then you're praising God and the result is that the people begin to be amazed and wonder, but here come the religious leaders, and they see this taking place. And because they're preaching Christ and the resurrection, and because these are Sadducees who didn't believe in it, and they were involved in the death of Jesus, they had thought that this had been stamped out. Now these people are doing even worse. They put him in custody. They bring him out. They say, you can no longer speak in the name of this man. You cannot preach or pray or do anything in his name. And then Peter comes and he and John and they're giving a report to these people. And they're saying, this is what happened. And and this is why they're praying. So they're lifting up their voices to the Lord. And and they're saying, God, we know this was part of of the plan that relates to you. We, We understand opposition is going to come. We know that it's against Jesus, not just us. But even though they joined forces, they cannot undermine what God has determined. And then they say in verse 29, now, now, Lord, look on their threats. Grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal. You've done it before, continue to do it. You see, Lord, we want to please you, we, we, want, we want boldness and courage in the face of opposition. We've been commanded to no longer speak, so strengthen us because we're going to. It's going to get worse. Grant us courage and grant us strength in the, in the face of the danger. We've received orders in the Great Commission to go out to the world and preach the gospel. We want to be faithful. You've performed a tremendous miracle. Please empower us and do, we, do even more and it says as they're, they're praying, verse, verse 31, they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. And that's how you have boldness. It's not just, it's just, it's not just the personality that you may have. We have people, I've known people who are very bold. They're, they're, they're the kind of people who just will just say it the way it is, but It isn't a a natural courage and boldness. It is a supernatural courage and boldness that you're asking God for. Lord, give me words and wisdom which none of my enemies can gainsay nor resist. Give me words that are anointed by you so that when I speak forth your word, it is obvious that your anointing is upon me as I do so. So that people will know that it's not just somebody speaking, but that you, by your spirit, are speaking through them Lord, this is what we desire. We want to be visited by your power. You see, this opposition, which would turn into persecution, has already begun to refine them. And their need for God is increasing. We want to have a greater impact is what they're saying. And I believe that the church needs to pray in such a way even today. And so as this is taking place, it says that they're speaking the Word of God with this courageous, this boldness. It says, verse 32, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and, and brought the proceeds to of the things that were sold, laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And and Joseph, who was also named uh, Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land sold it and, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And And so the church is growing rapidly. I want you to notice verse 32. It says the multitude. The church is growing so rapidly that numbers are no longer being recorded or mentioned. And a growth is a direct result of the spirit moving amongst them. Now, again, notice with me that Luke emphasizes they were of one heart and one soul. Their unity was in the Lord Jesus Christ. They were sharing life together. They were worshiping God. They served one another. They wanted to reach a lost world with the gospel. And so this is taking place in verse 32. It says, neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. The the fruit of this love and unity is generosity to those in need. They considered their possessions to be part of their stewardship. If someone had a need, they made sure that that need was met. That, That was something, by the way, that when I first got saved, really impressed me. Some of you will understand the context of what I'm trying to say, and I'll make it as brief as possible, but prior to coming to faith in Christ, my last few years prior to doing so from 15 to 20 was filled with alcohol and drugs, and so by the time I was 20 years old, I'd already established kind of a relationship in a counterculture kind of friendship, so my friends and I were part of what was called counterculture at that time, and so in that counterculture, though we called each other brother or sister, that's what we called each other, in fact, we weren't, and we knew that. So we would lie to each other and rip each other off. That was just part of the context of our brotherhood. So if you had pot, I, was, I liked that. That was, I liked it. Even before I had glaucoma. If you had pot, I had a car. I'll give you a ride. If you give me three joints. So you would bargain. That was our relationship. If we were, this is true. I'm telling you actual truth. This is not made up. This is who I was. If you and I were sitting together at a table. And you had wine. And you got up. Your wine is mine. <laughs> and, and they came man, Where'd my wine go? I so said, I know. Somebody walked in. And they took it. I did it. That was me. And and they did it to me too. They lied to me and stole from me. See, so I was used to that. You kind of you always keep your eyes on what's yours, because it may not be that long before one of your best friends steals it. And it didn't matter whether it was your wine or your dope or your girlfriend, they would take them. And that's a fact. And so now I'm saved. No, that's not true. Now I've got friends who are being saved in this Jesus movement, this revolution and whatever you want to call it. And I'm going over to somebody's house, friend of mine's house, and and you go into the house and and they're sharing everything they had. They're sharing it. You want something to eat, man? We just made something. And I'm going, yeah, because I didn't work, you know, so free. If it's free, it's for me, you know. And so I'm just mooching off these people. But after a while... I started seeing the reason they're doing this is because they have faith in God. That impressed me. That impressed me. I saw this kind of thing in in real life, in real action when I first got saved, where they acted as if it wasn't their own. They knew they were stewards, and they would give you things. They didn't ask for things in return. The Lord really used that in my life to show me what generosity actually was. what what this kind of thing is. And that was the earmark of the the early early church. It was an evidence of of conversion during that day, and it remains to be that way even to this day here. That was something that truly did, did speak to me. Notice how verse 33, it says, "...with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Great grace was upon them all, even though they had been forbidden to speak in the name of Christ and to preach the resurrection." God's grace and power is upon them, and that's exactly what they would do. They would preach the resurrection. They faithfully preached the gospel. Now, again, if somebody had anything and somebody else needed something, they began to uh, take care of them. It says in verse 34, Nor was there anyone among them who lacked all who were possessors of lands. or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of things that were sold, laid them at the apostles' feet, they distributed to each as anyone had need. At first, you'll see later in chapter 6 that they had to, actually had to de- develop a, a way of distributing. The apostles shouldn't be taking care of these things. They they eventually handed the, the uh, responsibility to do that to others who are, are called the first deacons in the church. But they would, or, originally they would just lay them there. In other words, put it under the supervisorship uh, uh, of the apostles. And they would make sure that these things... Were uh, distributed. Now I want to pick this up and move into chapter 5 because this leads us to chapter 5 and, and the study we're going to be looking at. It says in verse 36 in Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement. He was a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles feet. So he's closing that section by introducing Barnabas. He was a Levite, meaning he was a member of a priestly tribe. He was from Cyprus. He he was an encourager. That's what his name means. And he's also submitted to apostolic leadership. That's your introduction. And now you have a chance to see Ananias and Sapphira. But And notice how he begins. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira his wife... Sold a possession and kept, and he kept back part of the proceeds. His wife also being aware of it and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Satan joining the church. By this time, generosity for the members of the church has become fairly normal. From the birth of the church, generous concern for its own members had absolutely become what they do. In Acts 2, 44 and 45, it says, all who believed were together, had all things in common, sold their possessions and goods, divided them among all as anyone had need. You saw that also in chapter 4, verse 32 to verse 35. God was moving in mighty ways that the people in the church were excited Is minimizing what actually was taking place they were so blessed at what was happening and so as all of this is happening the spirit is moving people are are being bold in their profession of faith in Christ there's a man named Barnabas Barnabas sells a possession and in doing so he was noticed his name is mentioned here so he's noticed Joseph, who was named Barnabas, sold land and brought the money. He was noticed. I want you to see that. It seems that the couple wanted to receive attention. When Barnabas received this and was noted in that, it appears that Ananias and his wife, Sapphira, wanted to join in and gain attention. It seems that they thought they could also get attention, maybe even a position, but they wanted to do so with a lesser sacrifice. You see, Ananias sold property, and he gave a portion over to the apostles' care. So his greed and his hunger for riches overruled any impulse to give him faith. One commentator says, It appears that he gained a partial victory over his greed, but not a complete one. Now, they are professing believers, but there's no assurance that they were genuine followers of Christ. Why is that? Well, because according to Acts 4.32, all who were genuine were of one heart and one soul. They were not of one heart and one soul with the rest. They weren't of that sort, but they were trying to appear to be genuine believers. Once again, I saw that when I first got saved. The Jesus movement, and I I refer to that because it's a contemporary thing. People are talking a lot about it, seeking God for revival and pointing back to the Jesus movement and Greg's uh, movie that he made, The Jesus Revolution and All, has stirred up the church to questions. In that early day when when God was moving in a great revival, I got taken to a Maranatha concert, a Christian concert at the Hollywood Palladium, and there were about eight of us or so that went out of the eight that went to this particular concert, all eight of us had professed to be people who believed in Christ all well, I was the one who wasn't, I was the unbeliever that they had kidnapped, but there were seven who were believers and me. I got saved. These people all would gather in the same house. We would have, we would go to Calvary Costa Mesa for Bible study with Lonnie Frisbee. Then we'd go back to the house and we'd have afterglow. That became the norm for me for the first three months of my walk with the Lord. I went in the army. I got out. When I got out, out of those eight or so, there was only one who had continued with the Lord besides me. Only one. Why was it that they were wanting to do that? Well, at that time, guys, and this I know it, it'll sound weird to those of you who perhaps are younger and, and, and don't realize that this, this does happen, and it did happen. Um, Hollywood got caught up with it. The music world got caught up with the Jesus movement. There were people who were bringing out albums that, uh, you know, they used to call them albums. I don't know what they're called now, CDs or whatever, but albums, a little ancient history. And they had Jesus Christ Superstar, a rock opera about Jesus. That was extremely popular. It was even, you know, on, on Broadway and all of that. They, but then there was a counter-movement at that time where, where other, other rock groups that were well-known during that day, The Who, for example, Jethro Tull, another group, where The Who brought out Tommy, which was really an anti-Christ kind of album, and Aqualung with Jethro Tull, which was a blatantly anti-Christ album, for those of you who are aware of ancient history. That's what was taking place so There were people who were saying they were Christians because it was popular at that time. There were people like uh, uh, Clapton. Clapton was one who who they asked him about his faith. There were a lot of people talking about faith in Christ. Jesus was a big thing. God spell. All kinds of things were happening. And it became the kind of thing where young people... Because it was called a youth movement, young people began to get involved in it. And so they, you know, these hippie kids, you know, with the beads and the whole nine yards, you know, would gather and, and sing. And, and it's like love ins, except now it's with Jesus at the center. It was a real big thing for a while. People got on the bandwagon, they wanted to be associated with this movement. So I've seen that when Ananias and Sapphira saw that recognition was being given to Barnabas for selling his land and a position, you'll see later on in, in Acts, he, he becomes well known. They wanted to join in. You're never saved because you join a bandwagon of people who are saved. You're saved when you give your life to Jesus Christ alone without other people. That's how you get saved. I didn't get saved because of other people. I got saved because I needed to get saved. See, and they, they wanted, it's real obvious, to appear to be um, generous and faith-filled when, in fact, that was simply not true. They sold the possession and laid the proceeds before the apostles who were the dispensers of these things. Now, someone asked, well, what's wrong if you keep some of the profit for yourself? Even giving a small portion should be recognized as generous and even good. Well, it would seem that, and we'll see this clearly in a moment, Ananias and Sapphira wanted something else. They wanted to profit, and they wanted to profit at least twice. First, they wanted the spiritual prestige of being thought to be generous, and second, on a personal level, they wanted to profit financially. Now, God actually, through his word, is warned against this in Proverbs 21, 6. It says, a fortune made by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a deadly snare. The sin was not in making money on the sale of the property. The sin was in lying and pretending to give it all to the Lord. And so as this is taking place, notice verse 3. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the uh, price of the land for yourself, while it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? And he goes on to say, you have not lied to men, but to God. What happens is he exercises spiritual gifts. Notice how he says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? So he's exercising spiritual gifts. You see these gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 8 and 10. You see the discernment that he has. Discernment. Discernment speaks of reading hearts, determining whether something is true or not. He's discerning this. The gift of supernatural knowledge, or the gift of knowledge, is a knowledge that comes through God. It's a supernatural. It doesn't come in in the ordinary way of achieving knowledge. It's God, God giving you knowledge at that moment. And that's what he's saying here. In verse 3, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? So instead of a word of praise, he's confronted. He asks the question, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? In other words, this, this impulse to lie. This is something that is being provoked in you. You see, Ananias was open to lie, and Satan encouraged him to do so. Satan encouraged him To do what he desired to do. Satan provoked his inclination. And he used his greed. To trap him. It's like what happened with Judas. When within Judas was a desire to betray Christ. And Satan provoked that in him. There are things that can lie within a person. That are lying in a sense undisturbed. And the enemy knows that weakness and puts that person in positions where that weakness can rise to the top and take control of the behavior. Ananias was not saved. Sapphira was not saved. They yielded because of the impulse of their own flesh to receive prestige and to be perceived as spiritual. Satan used that in order to entrap them. Peter saw that and called it out for what it is. Why have you conceived this? He said in verse 4, why have you conceived this thing in your heart? Satan provoked the impulse, but the responsibility for yielding was Ananias's. His sin originated in himself. Satan didn't force him to sin. Ananias didn't have to sell the property, and he didn't need to give a gift. He chose to do this and to misrepresent himself before the people. Because of this, he's judged. Now, I want to give you another insight to this, and it'll take a moment. But notice verse 4. You have not lied to men, but to God. Let me say this quickly, but this is something that could actually take a lot longer. I'll just say it quickly. You have not lied to men. You have lied to God. What we see here is first... That the Holy Spirit, and you may not think this is important. This is an essential Christian doctrine. The Holy Spirit is a person. There are those who refer to the Holy Spirit as a force or an energy. Jehovah's Witnesses do. The Holy Spirit is a person. You cannot lie to electricity. You can't walk up to your Tesla and lie to it. You can't. Because it isn't a person, it's just a force or energy. But he's saying, you're lying to the Spirit. So that's one thing, I want you to see the person of the Spirit. And second, he speaks of the deity of the Holy Spirit, because he said, in lying to the Spirit, you have lied to God. You have lied to God. And so, as he's saying that to him, it says in verse uh, 5, Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his, his last. Great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and, and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. And so it was instant. Now, Peter didn't bring judgment. God did. And notice with me, God's judgment was swift. The sin was dealt with immediately. This is a new and a fresh work of God, and God is giving a warning. It's similar to what had happened when God was working with Israel originally in in Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3 in the Old Testament. It says, Aaron's son, Aaron being Moses' brother and the first high priest, Aaron's son, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them, added incense, and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command." So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, among those who approach me, I will show myself holy in the sight of all the people, I will be honored. And Aaron remained silent. So it was instant. The result, verse 5 tells us, great fear came upon all those who heard these things. So verse 6, the young men came and wrapped him up and took him and buried him. When it says the young men, it's not speaking simply of their age. It's also speaking of their position. They were similar to what would eventually become deacons. And, and they put him in a winding sheet, buried him immediately because the climate, in that climate, bodies would decay quickly. Now, verse 7, and we'll roll to, roll to a conclusion. It was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much? And she said, Oh, yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, Liar, liar, pants on fire. (laughs) Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet, breathed her last The young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. Great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. They were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. Peter gave her an opportunity to confess and to repent, but she continued to lie. She may not have known what had happened. You see, three hours had passed and he hadn't come home. So when Peter asked this, she she may have thought that they were going to receive even more honor. But Peter said to her, this is what you've done. You see, Sapphira knew her husband had done this and she had agreed with him. And even though it was he who lied... She consented to it and was also guilty along with him. They desired to be regarded as important disciples, but they weren't disciples at all. They wanted to appear to be. And that's why Peter in verse 9 asked, why have you agreed together to test the spirit, to entice the spirit? See, in attempting to deceive the apostles, they were actually testing God's spirit. Was the spirit empowering these men, gifting these men, leading these men? The church was in its infancy. Sin was not welcome in the body of Christ, so her sin was exposed, and it was dealt with. And once again, God's judgment was swift. What is the response? Verse 11, great fear came upon all the church. The judgment brought a purging of sin amongst the people and produced a holy fear. I'll close with a couple thoughts. In our day, casual sinning and church attendance is normal. I can, I can, I, I can tell you stories. I've been around for a while now, but I will tell you that's a fact. That that there are people who on <laughs> will go to church on Sunday, and immediately after leaving the church service, you can see them at the local bar. Sometimes they'll go to a girlfriend's or a boyfriend's house, and they have sex. Don't think anything of it. And they're back on a Wednesday and. A, and a Sunday casual sin no sense of fear no sense of doing something wrong doesn't matter gossiping about people angry at people we've had to stop fights in the parking lot that's the truth those were staff members you should have seen the other ones <laughs> What we really have, we've had to stop fights in the parking lot. I can go on, I won't, because I've only got a couple minutes. Casual sin. Please, don't look at sin casually. Always remember this. The sin that became a pet in your life is the sin that Jesus died to set you free from. And when we play with sin, it's been said, and I love this quote, it's like kissing the tip of the spear that was plunged into the side of Jesus. Anybody who casually sins doesn't understand the grace of God. Anybody who thinks it's okay to continue in the world and to live for the world, at the same time thinking themselves to be saved by the grace of God is misunderstanding God's grace. But then shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? Paul said, God forbid. How shall we who have died to sin live any longer therein? Those of you who have been with me in Romans know that's chapter 6, verse 2, verses. Don't play with sin. Just because he hasn't put us to death immediately doesn't mean we're going to get away with it. Your sin shall find you out. And ultimately, it will be exposed. 52 plus years serving the Lord. 50 years teaching the word of God in September. And I can tell you by experience, there are quite a number of people who think they can get away with it. And you can't. And when they're caught, very often they'll say, I don't know why God is treating me this way. It's a good thing your name's not Sapphira or Ananias, If you're playing with sin, stop it. Die to it. Ask God for help because the God we worship is a holy God and we are not to misrepresent him to the people of a nation that is going to hell in a handbasket. If there's ever been a time for the church to get serious, it's right now. And there are numbers of people who are giving up the lives of their children to sports. Oh, it's Sunday, and they're on a traveling team, and we have to go to. And that child is learning what your faith is, not by the two-minute devotion that daddy does before they play, but by the lack of fellowship and need for the word that they see in their parents. And we're losing a generation because of lazy disciples. Don't play with sin. If there's ever been a time when the church needs to wake up, it's now because they are after. And when I say they, in I believe it was it was in the Pacific Northwest, where homosexuals were marching saying, We're we're queer, we're here, and we're after your children. They're after your children. Is that a conspiracy mind? No, that's what they're saying. And we are saying, oh no, they're just kidding. No, please, perhaps somebody needs to hear this in this way. I'm trying to be clear. Wake up. Listen, I got four kids, I've got a number of grandkids, and time passes by that fast. What happened to that two year old who has now become a 40 something? What happened? Those days went, and you cannot get them back. They're gone forever. And all you have is this moment. So do not take it lightly. And do not play with sin. If there's ever been a time when the church needs to wake up, it is now. We need to wake up. I'm serious. I'm serious. Casual sinning is going on in the church. You see, God's grace is... Is amazing, and and he gives us space to repent. But 2 Timothy 2.19 says it like this. The foundation of God stands sure. Having this seal, the Lord knows them that are his, and let everyone that names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. May people know you, know me, as people who love Jesus and live according to his word and walk in his spirit. May that be our testimony today, that people know you love the Lord, know you're not perfect, not not this side of heaven, but you are most certainly moving towards the direction of more and more sanctification in your life, and those sins that you used to have as pets have been put away, they've been put to death, and you're moving forward because of Jesus Christ. Awaken thou that sleepest, and Christ shall shine upon you, Paul told the Ephesians. We need to awake. We need to walk in the Spirit. Ananias and Sapphira were pollutants in the body of Christ. They were removed. May God work in us to purify us so we can be used by him for his glory. Amen? Amen. Amen. If you'd like to learn more about Pastor David or Calvary Chapel, Chino Valley, please visit our website at calvaryccv.org. Thanks for listening, and have a great day.